0: Bridgebank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridgebank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridgebank, be bold, venture wisely.
1: Hi there, I'm Rand Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. If
2: you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.
3: From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. B-L-A-C-H Block Construction, together building greatness. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected. On the web at theschmidt.org. On today's California Report magazine, a
2: rebroadcast of our award-winning show about refugees in California. We hear from a 95-year-old man who survived nine Nazi concentration camps and two death marches to make it to the U.S.
4: It was a tremendous feeling, a Holocaust survivor, to be on the ship and to see the Statue of Liberty.
2: And we meet a Syrian family living in Oakland who came to California after fleeing their war-torn homeland. Plus, we talk with Pulitzer Prize winner and Vietnamese refugee Viet Nguyen, who says there's a reason some Americans are threatened
0: by refugees. Refugees are living reminders of the fact that the lives that we take for granted can be wiped away by one catastrophe. Or one war.
2: On today's show, we'll take you around the world and back in time to learn more about how refugees become refugees, a bit of a history lesson on how refugees have been welcomed or not over the last century. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is a special edition of the California Report magazine. We're going to start our show today at a brand new coffee shop in Berkeley. The baristas are all refugees. And the name, 1951 Coffee Company, refers to the 1951 Refugee Convention that defines who refugees are and the protections countries have to give them. It was signed by 145 nations in the aftermath of World War II. 1951 Coffee Company was named in the spirit of that agreement says co-founder Doug Hewitt.
5: We are recognizing that refugees are here, um, and we are participating in that process of protecting and welcoming refugees here.
2: When you walk into this cafe, you follow stripes on the floor. They're multicolored lines that guide you to the counter and the tables. They evoke paths, airports, the steps refugees have to follow to move from one place to another. At the back of the space, a graphic artist is sticking decals on the wall.
5: The black curved wall has icons across the top. Each icon represents a specific stage um, within the refugee's journey. So it begins with an icon that says, A life like yours.
2: When the map is finished, Hewitt says it'll chart the main steps in a refugee's journey, a journey that doesn't end when they arrive in the U.S. Behind the counter, a barista named Batul, an 18 year old refugee from Syria, is whipping up a fresh mocha.
0: I don't drink coffee, actually. <laughs> But I like coffee.
2: like all the refugees working here, but tools a recent arrival she 's been in the u s just under two years she 's learning about coffee but also about customer service and California culture. We sent reporter Laura Clivens to her family 's home in Oakland to talk with her parents and get the story behind their seven thousand mile journey to the bay Area. Just a note, we first aired this story in February two thousand and seventeen. JUST AFTER PRESIDENT TRUMP FIRST ANNOUNCED AN EXECUTIVE ORDER HALTING ALL REFUGEE ADMISSIONS AND TEMPORARILY BARRING PEOPLE FROM SEVEN MAJORITY MUSLIM COUNTRIES.
5: MOHAMMED
6: R.F. ROAS SHOWS OFF HIS FAMILY'S GARDEN IN EAST OAKLAND. Just over the chain link fence, trucks roar by, but he ignores them as he points out his lemon tree, an apricot tree, another lemon. A fig tree. Yeah. There's a grapevine snaking along the fence and peas. There's a lot growing in an area that could fit maybe two cars. But it's nothing compared to the 10 acre farm the family had in Syria. That had over 100 different fruit trees, Roas says. Roas and his wife, Rawa Kaseda have four children, ages 11 through 22. Here's Caseda.
1: We tolerated the war for one year, and it became dangerous when it came closer to our city.
6: The family lived in a Damascus suburb. Roas had a clothing factory. The whole family had a car and a house that they loved. But as the conflict got closer, it became too dangerous for the kids to go to school. And when the fighting reached the factory, Roas shut it down. Fifty employees lost their jobs. At one point, two tanks faced off in front of the Roas family house. The building shook every time one fired.
1: The hardest day was when we left our home. Uh, we didn't know who was bombing and, and the electricity went out. And from fear, all of us slept in, a, in, in one hallway on a foam mattress. We were all crying and scared.
6: The next morning, they fled their home of eight years. Kaseda wept. And my husband said, you sound like you've lost a child, the way you're crying. After crossing the border to Jordan, they were able to register as refugees with the United Nations. They left the war zone, but entered limbo. As refugees, it was hard to find work, and every time the kids went back to school, it was unclear if they'd finish out the term. Roas and Caseda worried that any misstep could send them back to Syria. Two years after crossing the border, they learned they'd be resettled.
1: We didn't even know at the time what country we were going to. We just needed any out of the situation, any way to get out.
6: They were going to the U.S. Now the waiting involved interviews, every few months, each one lasting a full day.
1: I knew that if I had an interview that day, I was leaving at 8, I would not be home till evening. So I would pack sandwiches for the kids, and we knew that it would be
6: a long day. The family was interviewed together and separately. Sometimes Roas, the father, would be interviewed for four hours. There were fingerprints, photos, iris scans, and medical exams. Eight federal U.S. agencies, six security databases, five separate background checks. And at the end of one interview day, an official told them they only had a small chance of being accepted. But three years after leaving Syria, the family finally boarded a plane to the U.S.,
1: When I first came, for the first five months, I cried every day because I was so used to doing everything for my kids myself.
6: Now, after two years in Oakland, Caseda and Roas are in English classes. Roas works as a bus driver for kids with disabilities and for Uber. The oldest daughters, they go to college, and they also have jobs. One works as a dental assistant and the other at 1951 Coffee. She also volunteers to help newer refugees. The two youngest children study and they play sports.
5: Now we're here in this country, and we're in America, and we've eaten American food, and we've tried American life. And now this is our land, and this is our home.
6: Roas feels that so strongly, he'd fight for it.
5: In the Alameda College, they were recruiting for the military, and I told my daughter, I want to go into the military.
6: But he didn't have a green card yet. When he got one, he went back to the recruiter, but he was turned down. He's almost 50 years old. Now he's thinking about other ways to serve.
5: It would make me really happy to work for the government or join the police because I really feel like I want to serve this country since we've gotten so much.
6: The Roases came here when Obama was in office. But now that President Trump is changing refugee policies, they feel just a little less welcome.
5: What is someone supposed to do? They have two choices. They can either stay inside and die in the war, or they flee, and they die at sea very often. So we were so joyful when the doors opened for us. But now what about the other people? Life has become dark for them, and they don't have any opportunities.
6: That includes Caseda's brother. He was supposed to arrive this month, and the ROASs are his sponsors.
1: My brother is one of those people who his suitcases are packed and zipped up in Jordan. He's just waiting to get on a plane.
6: But for now, they'll study and work and tend their garden. They'll raise their backyard chickens. And they'll share their food.
1: Uh, (laughs) Mujaddara is a um, traditional dish made with Uh, lentils and bulgur.
6: Roas and Casado want to start teaching cooking classes and eventually open a Syrian restaurant. For the California Report, I'm Laura Clivens in East Oakland.
2: Since this story first aired in February 2017, the family has started a catering business called Old Damascus Fair, making mostly Syrian dishes. One person who's been watching the changes to refugee policy closely is Letty Vulp. She's a UC Berkeley law professor and an expert on immigration and refugee policy. I sat down with her at 1951 Coffee and we talked about another time when American refugee policy was top of mind during the years following the Vietnam War. You had, by the summer of 1979, 14,000 people a month being admitted. Volpe says the wave of Vietnamese refugees in the late 70s was a turning point that pushed Congress to pass a law that would, in theory, revamp refugee policy. But in fact, when you look at the history of who's been admitted, um, it still reflects very much um, you know, the, the particular foreign affairs interests um, of the United States government. Viet Nguyen was among those hundreds of thousands of refugees arriving at that time. The Southern California author won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for his novel, The Sympathizer. And his newest book is a collection of short stories called The Refugees. He says his refugee journey started when he was four years old.
0: We were living in Vietnam and in a small town called Me Thuot, And in March of 1975, it was the first town overrun by the final communist invasion. My father was actually in Saigon on business, and my mother had to make a life-and-death decision about what to do. So she decided to flee. My brother and I, my brother was 10 years old, and my mother, we walked um, to Nhajiang, which was the nearest port town, 184 kilometers away. And we were able to get on board a a boat or barge at Nhajiang and make it to Saigon, find my dad. And then a month later, the communists took Saigon as well. And so we had to repeat the experience picked up by the U.S. Navy, taken to Guam. And then we flew from there to Fort Indiantown Gap in Pennsylvania, which is where my memory really begins.
2: I notice in your work that you make this distinction between immigrants and refugees. Why is that?
0: the idea of the immigrant experience is absolutely central to the American story or the American mythology, even though at periodic points in American history, the United States has been actually rather anti-immigrant. Nevertheless, the idea of the American dream is that we welcome immigrants to these shores. And so the easiest way to make sense out of somebody like me who was born elsewhere is to call me an immigrant, which implicitly turns me into a success story. I look at this immigrant and he's written a novel. Isn't it great? No matter the tragedy that he's dealing with. But refugees are much more threatening than immigrants. Immigrants voluntarily come to our country. They've chosen our country. Refugees have been forced out by circumstances, and they are the unwanted in the countries that they come from, and they're the unwanted in the countries that they go to, usually. And that is one of the reasons why I think Americans and other people from other countries have a hard time dealing with refugees uh, because of the stigma that they carry of being the unwanted Even more than that, though, I think the reason why Americans fear refugees and the reason why other nations fear refugees is that these refugees are living reminders of the fact that the lives that we take for granted, all of our material trappings and our comforts that we think will always be there can be wiped away by one catastrophe or one war. And that is extremely uncomfortable especially for Americans who believe so strongly in the American dream, believe so strongly that Americans can never be refugees.
2: How do you think you can talk or share those experiences in a way that creates empathy?
0: Well, I think all novelists, all writers, all artists work to create empathy. That's the basic material of what it is that we do. So if anybody who encounters our works should get a nudge in the more empathetic direction. The problem is getting people to read the books or watch the movies. So you can't actually make people be more empathetic if they don't want to be empathetic. So people who read books are already inclined to want to experience the lives and the perspectives of others. So if somebody picks up my book, I've already won half the battle.
2: So your new collection, The Refugees, it's a compilation of stories spanning some 20 years, right? It took about two decades to write them?
0: Mm-hmm, unfortunately. <laughs>
2: One of the stories, called The War Years, is set in a Vietnamese grocery store, kind of like the one you grew up in, right, in San Jose? Can you read us a passage?
0: Sure. I liked school, even summer school. It was like being on vacation from home. And at 3 o'clock, I was always a little disappointed to walk the four blocks to the grocery store my parents owned, the new Saigon Market, where English was hardly ever spoken and Vietnamese was loud. My mother and father rarely left their posts, the cash registers flanking the entrance of the new Saigon. Customers always crowded the market, one of the few places in San Jose where the Vietnamese could buy the staples and spices of home, jasmine rice and star anise, fish sauce and fire engine red chilies. People haggled endlessly with my mother over everything, beginning with the rock sugar, which I pretended was yellow kryptonite, and ending with the varieties of meat in the freezer, from pork chops and catfish with a glint of light in their eyes, to shoestrings of chewy tripe and packets of chicken hearts, small and tender, as buttoned mushrooms. Can't we just sell TV dinners, I asked once?
2: That detail is just too precise to be totally fictionalized.
0: This is the only autobiographical story I've ever written and uh that that grocery store both saved us financially and almost killed my parents. And that is a very typical refugee or immigrant shopkeeper kind of story that they were shot in their store on on Christmas Eve that we were invaded at at gunpoint at home by by somebody looking for our money, which is also in the story as well.
2: So many of your stories touch on dislocation, a sense of not belonging. Do you still feel like a refugee?
0: I still feel like I am a refugee, although I'm not certain whether I'm romanticizing myself at that Mm -hmm. point. Uh, Obviously, Uh, I am not a refugee in any material sense. Um, I have made the transition, as one colleague jokingly says, from being refugee to bourgeoisie. um, And no one would ever mistake me for a refugee unless I said it. But I feel like I've been shaped by my refugee experience, and psychologically part of me is a refugee. Like, I, I, I feel at home in the United States, but I don't feel completely at home I feel like I'm still somewhat of an outsider. And again, maybe I cultivate that because being an outsider helps me to be a writer, to always be observing people from the perspective of someone who's a refugee and who is a little skeptical of the American dream and of the American mythologies that that Americans like to tell themselves. But I also think it's important to keep proclaiming that I'm a refugee, even if I am not really one in fact anymore, because it's necessary for those of us who have been refugees to assert that identity in public, to come out as refugees, to remind people that this is what refugees can become, and that this is is what refugees were like before they became refugees. So it's kind of an obligation to keep hanging on to that refugee past.
2: Viet Nguyen, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Since we first aired that interview, Viet Nguyen was honored with a MacArthur Genius Award for his fiction and cultural criticism. And now, let's rewind to 1939, when the U.S. refused to admit Jewish refugees on the passenger ship St. Louis. Despite intense media attention, the ship had no option but to return to Europe. Although some passengers eventually made it safely to other countries, others died in Hitler's concentration camps. UC Berkeley law professor Letty Volpe says that's considered the low point in U.S. refugee policy.
1: So this was a time when the United States had no refugee policy. Instead, what it had was a system of national origins quotas
2: from the early 1920s to 1965, which strictly limited how many persons could come in per year from certain countries. The U.S. government's refugee policies continued without a clear strategy for most of World War II until December 1945. That's when President Harry Truman issued a directive allowing displaced people from Europe to come to the U.S. Here's a newsreel from that time.
5: Why do we and our allies help these people? Is it charity? Is it human kindness? Or is America a sucker to bother with these Europeans now that we've beaten Hitler? A little of human kindness for these people, yes, but not suckers.
2: It would be nice to think think that Truman's move was out of generosity, but... Experts say, more than anything, the changes were geopolitical. U.S. officials wanted stability in Europe.
5: If we don't help these people now, then the chaos will continue indefinitely. And the seeds of a third world war will take root.
2: Truman's decision to accept those refugees back in 1945 came just in time for one man, who now lives in Berkeley. Ben Stern rolls up his sleeve to show me the one thing he needed to get into the U.S. as a refugee— He had no birth certificate, no documents, but he had his tattoo, the number 129592, still indelibly inked onto his 95-year-old skin.
4: I'm born in Warsaw, Poland. I am a Holocaust survivor of two ghettos, nine concentration camps, and two death marches.
2: He was one of the passengers on the SS Marine Flasher, the very first ship carrying Holocaust survivors to arrive in the U.S. after the war.
5: This is what Europe's like now that the war is over and the Germans are beaten. These are a few of the millions of people who were once labor slaves of the Nazis and who are now trying desperately to get home.
4: It was a a tremendous feeling to be on the a Holocaust survivor, to be on the ship and to see the Statue of Liberty. And when I speak now, I got tears in my eyes.
2: Ben shows me a clipping from a Chicago newspaper, a picture of him carrying his new bride off a train. Headline, their love for each other was stronger than the Nazi terror. you look
4: looking at two happy faces, without a next day in sight. It was the first free steps in the United States.
2: Ben's telling me about the photo from memory. He can hardly see or hear. And it says more than 60 of the pair's relatives were slain by the Nazis in the caption. Is that right? Yes. Right. Yes.
4: And if you take a pen and, pa- and paper... I'll name him to you.
2: Ben Stern is sharp, thoughtful, and active at 95. And he's still married to his wife, Helen. He walks a mile and a half every day to visit her at a nursing facility.
7: He's a force for life. That's all I can say.
2: That's his oldest daughter, Charlene, who joins us for lunch, along with his roommate,
4: Leah.
2: As we sit down to eat, Ben says a blessing.
4: Thank God for the bread drawn from the earth.
2: Okay, what is the secret to longevity? Is it eating bagel and lox?
4: Being positive in life. Very simple, optimistic, positive, go forward. Don't look back. I got a lot to look back, and I live with that. I live with both.
7: I thought you were going to tell her about your vodka.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I'll drink to (laughs) that.
2: Charlene's made a new 30-minute film about her father's life, aimed at schools and universities.
4: We were the dangerous Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto.
2: She wants to reach young people with his message of hope and resilience. She's calling her documentary A Near Normal Man.
7: My father has always said he's near normal. For a man who was a fugitive, was enslaved, was beaten, whipped, shot at, starved, marched almost to death twice. The most astounding fact of having him for a father is where does his courage and kindness and hope come from? He was just 17 when the Nazis
2: invaded Poland. He was the only member of his family to survive. His parents and nine siblings were all killed. He resettled in Skokie, Illinois, and in his 50s led an effort to stop neo-Nazis from marching in his adopted hometown. In
5: 1978, Frank Collin announced his intentions of marching his Nazi party through the streets of Skokie, Illinois. He chose Skokie because it was the most populated Jewish city per capita in America.
7: Jewish Americans said, you're too frightened. It's not going to happen here. We're a democracy. Relax. Stay home. It'll pass. My dad would not let it pass.
2: Ben Stern led a campaign of protest, collecting 750,000 signatures. In the end, the Nazi group changed its mind about coming to Skokie even though they won the legal right to march with the help of the ACLU. While he didn't agree with them back then, today Ben thinks the ACLU's doing the right thing, filing lawsuits to protect refugees. He says watching the news of Syrians and Iranians being
4: turned away at airports has made it hard for him to sleep these days. My pains are from the past, but it brings me right back to that point in my life all over again. I learned a long time ago that history repeats itself.
2: Ben says even though it's a controversial comparison to make, he sees an echo of Nazi Germany in the way the Trump administration is approaching civil rights.
4: There's a shadow in the sky, a tornado hanging, and we don't know where it's going to hit. We got to be alert, watchful and responsive. You cannot stand by, be indifferent. That is a sin, a colossal sin that will catch up with you later on. Wait, you need the locks back?
7: Yes, yeah, I do need the locks back.
4: After lunch,
2: Ben clears the table and starts in on the dishes with his roommate Leah. It's amazing.
4: Amazing. We work like a team.
2: An unusual team. Leah's a 31-year-old graduate student who answered an ad to be Ben's roommate. And there's something else.
1: I'm from Germany. My father's parents, my grandparents, were Nazis. They were very active. They were really into the system.
2: But Leah's parents were not. Now she's a graduate student in Jewish and Holocaust studies.
1: The history of the nation Um, it's family history, too. How can I say I wouldn't have participated if so many people participated? And what does that mean if I bring this thought into the presence of, like, what am I doing right now when what is happening in the world? Where am I contributing? Where am I standing up? Where am I raising my voice? And as long as I'm not doing anything, I will always stay a perpetrator in a way. I I will stay someone who hasn't learned from history.
4: Um open-minded to get along with people. I want to prove it, that it can be done. Different ages,
2: different religions. Ben Stern says he and Leah are following Trump's
4: efforts to restrict refugees closely. I'm only 95 years old, but I must tell you that I'm still full of hope. I'm hopeful we as Americans continue to live and enjoy the freedom that this country offers.
2: And just a note, since we first aired this story, Ben Stern has continued his activism, marching at the head of a group protesting a planned far-right rally in Berkeley. He said that when he was marching, he saw his parents and nine siblings marching in front of him in his mind. And that's it for our special rebroadcast of The California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Suzy Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, and we had additional engineering from Katie McMurrin and Rob Spate. Our online producer is David Marks. We had production and translation help this week from Lubna Tukwiri. The California Report's senior editor is Victoria Malone. Our editorial staff includes Carrie Feibel, Ryan Levy, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening.
3: California Report, Magazine. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected, on the web at theschmidt.org. The James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. And Barracuda Networks. Cloud Generation Firewalls, engineered for today's modern, globally dispersed networks. Learn more at barracuda.com firewalls.
0: Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.